Holopod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the first, but hopefully not the last, in a brand new series on the Empire Podcast, in which we celebrate the career of some of our favourite film folk and listen back to our podcast encounters with them over the years. Ah... Alan's Deep Bath. The first in this occasional series is the great Carl Weathers, the man who is Apollo Creed, the man who is Action Jackson, the man who is Dylan, you son of a bitch, the man who <laughs> is Jobs Peterson, and of course, the man who is Grief Carga in The Mandalorian. And joining me to discuss Carl's career are three colleagues of such lethal cunning, assembled here today because some damn fool said they were the best. They are <laughs> James Dyer. Hello, Chris. Hello, this James. This is a virtual mid-air high five. <laughs> they are Helen O'Hara. Oh my God, your muscles are all straining in that high five. It's crazy, yeah. man. I've oiled myself up for this. <laughs> I've been preparing my whole life for this arm wrestle. And they are, of course, Empire's editor-in-chief. Bow your heads, avert your eyes. It is the one, the only Terry White. Throw the damn towel! <laughs> oh my God. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Uh, quick reminder that Terry is the editor-in-chief of Empire and uh, is a responsible human being. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, um, yes. And is mainly here to filibuster about Apollo Creed. Yes. Well, you know, we've talked about this before, Chris. I've seen Rocky Four over 300 times. So um, I knew my knowledge, my deep, deep knowledge would come in handy one day. And here we are. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. At long last. Uh, first, though, before Terry does, because Terry's got to run, because Terry is obviously a very, very important person that has to run for a very important meeting soon. So Terry will filibuster about Apollo Creed in a few minutes. But first, we're going to hear from Carl himself. Uh, he's been on the Empire podcast twice in our storied history. Uh, and uh, we're basically going to run excerpts from those interviews now for you to listen to. Uh, so here he is, first of all, talking to me on the Empire podcast back in March 2017 uh, when he was promoting Chicago Justice and we talked about that and Predator and Rocky and a great many other things besides. True story before we begin, I had completely forgotten that he was meant to come in on the morning of the podcast and the only reason I remembered he was meant to come in was because I was going to work and as I was uh, arriving at the tube station, I saw a bus advertising Chicago Chicago Justice, and I looked at the uh, the poster going, oh, that's Carl Weathers. Oh, that's nice. Chicago- Carl Weathers, shit! And so I had to run into the office and quickly, quickly do some prep. Uh, but luckily, I don't think it shows, because you know what, folks? My entire life has been prepped to talk to Carl Weathers. Here's our first interview with him. Do please enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the great Carl Weathers. How are you, sir? Oh, wow. The great Carl Weathers. The great Carl oh, Weathers. Thank you, you, you have earned it. Ah, you know, I, I generally uh, refer to others as the great, but uh, uh, to be sitting here and to be in this beautiful... By the way, today is absolutely gorgeous outside for all of those people in Radioland. I mean, it is a beautiful day in London, so I'm so happy I brought the weather to you all. Yes. In your suitcase, in your carry-on luggage. All of that I yeah. had, and when I opened it, bang, sunshine came out. Southern California's sunshine came out. Weather's brought um, the weather. Yeah, yeah, weather's brought, thank you, very good. <laughs> that's that's why you get paid the big bucks. <laughs> I, um, think, I think someone here gets paid big bucks, and oh, it's uh, not me. Well, uh, okay, we'll find them eventually. <laughs> we'll get to them. Uh, anyway, I I thank you uh, for the uh, 
the the greeting. It's nice to be here. Oh, uh, fantastic! That's it's a, absolutely fantastic. It's a pleasure to have you, and you're, and you're here because of Chicago Justice, yes. which I'm very excited about because I am a massive Law and Order fan. Oh well, and this is this is connected. This is a not a spin-off necessarily. It's an incarnation. Incarnation. Of, yeah. An incarnation of we. Uh, yeah, we we if you're a Law and Order fan, and hopefully if you're not, you'll become a fan of Chicago Justice because we deliver, hopefully on a week to week basis, in ways that people cannot imagine they're going to be entertained. So you're playing uh, basically an attorney general, is that, is that correct? I am playing the state's attorney. State's attorney, yeah, yes. You know, uh, uh, an attorney general type. Okay. In uh, in Chicago. Uh, the state's attorney is an elected official. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Mark Jeffries, the character, is a bit of a politician, you might say. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians, as we all know, like to keep their jobs. And so <laughs> they do a lot of promising of things that sometimes they don't deliver. Okay. In the yeah. case of Mark Jeffries, of course, he delivers, of man. Course. He's, of you know, he's an ethical guy. You could not not deliver. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's beyond you. It's, it is beyond the great <laughs> <laughs> to not deliver. Deliver. But um, you know, it's a it's a it's a show that obviously uh, is a Dick Wolf show, and that mm. right there um, means that there's going to be a particular type of quality about the show, mm. and uh, it does in his in its own way resemble, I suppose, uh, Law and Order. So it's a much more mm. uh, contemporary version, if you would. It's mm. a hipper version, in my opinion, because I'm so hip, you know. <laughs> uh, um, but um, yeah, I'm also a little out of my mind here. It seems that no, jet, jet lag's uh, a horrible uh, thing. Well, you know, I'm I'm kind of over that by now. Yeah. No, it's not that. It's just that being in London is such a joy. I've been here so many times, and I get here, and I just, I kind of get giddy. I don't know why. Oh, There's something okay. in the water, maybe. Huh? Okay. I don't know. It's it's the it's the London air. I'm not sure. It's the beautiful women on the street. It's <laughs> it's the it's the clothing that people are wearing. Everybody's so cool in London. They look so. Hip. And then you meet me. Oh well. <laughs> and suddenly Chris, you realize. Chris, you know, it just brings me back to earth. Meeting you just, <laughs> just brings me back to earth. What are your London haunts, Carl? Where where do you go when you're here? Um. Wow, I'm not a haunting kind of guy. I never have been. Okay. But I do say this. Every time I come and I have to go uh, stroll Savile Row, I have to go and look at uh, what sartorial splendor exists on Savile Row and um, see what I can afford (laughs) because, (laughs) man, those guys, I remember back in the day when I came here, the first time I ever went to Savile Row was, uh, God, a hundred years ago, maybe. And and I thought it was as expensive then. Uh-huh. Uh, it's gotten ridiculously expensive now. They don't even let me walk on Savile Row. Well, they let me walk, but they they kick me out of stores very quickly when I <laughs> when I look at things and want to say you know want to ask what's the price. Like, Get out of here. That's the thing. If you ask, well, then if you, you can't. But you yeah. can't afford it. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's you know that's a good thing to learn in life, right? Don't well, ask. Surely Chicago Justice has a pretty decent clothing budget. I imagine. Well, they've they... got a clothing budget. Yeah. yeah, but you know they don't help me out at all. I have to wear the clothes on the show and then give them back. Oh, man, that sucks. Yeah, I know it sucks. That's how the great Carl Weathers doesn't roll too well. You know? <laughs> I just have this vision of, of Dick Wolf giving you a, a black Amex and just uh, saying, really, Carl? Really? Have an Is afternoon. that the vision of him you have? <laughs> That's the vision. <laughs> I sure wish he'd show me that vision. Uh, you know, I, I'm really just happy to be on the show, man. It's, yeah. it's such a joy and... Uh, you know we're 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 very fortunate too because we have really gre- great guest actors who come on the show and uh-huh. many of them have been around and some of them uh, were back from the old Law and Order days. You know, oh, fantastic. Uh, so they've worked on Dick Wolf shows and a lot of quality shows in the states and 
And then we have great writers, as I said, who deliver great stories. But we also have a, a really wonderful group of uh, directors who've come on the show and done, done such stellar work. So mm. it makes our job as easy as one might have it in television because it's a grind, you know, the hours. But um, we're very, very pleased. And so far, knock on wood, in the U.S., uh, for those of you who don't have tele- uh, have have uh, radios with screens and can see us. I'm literally knocking on my head when I say <laughs> knock on wood. Um, in a very sharp suit, I may say. Yeah, in a very, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, you know, something's got to work here. Um, <laughs> you know, we have really good directors and they, they, they really deliver really wonderful, wonderful uh, shows. And, and so far in the U.S., the audiences have really embraced them. We're getting really uh, a good good viewership and people like the show so Fantastic. you know we're, we're not crying yet we get, we're not you know we want to do better work we want to deliver stellar work we want yeah. to deliver award quality work yeah. but uh, it's nice to to Come out of the shoot and have people like the show. Oh, fantastic! And and, and you uh, you shoot in Chicago. This is not one of the cases where no, 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 Vancouver we don't. No, exactly. Or, you know, you yeah. know how it goes. Vancouver yeah. for for London. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. You know, <laughs> no, we shoot in Chicago, as do the other Chicago shows, mm-hmm. and so the city. You know, I don't know how many people in the audience uh, who are listening right now have ever been to Chicago, but it is one of maybe second to London, but it is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the old line, every great city has a river running through it. <laughs> and Chicago has actually three. They're tributaries of the, you know, the main, but yes. it's a beautiful city with a magnificent skyline. Um, and... Um, Downtown is just—it's a wonder. I mean, if you if you have a chance to go, yeah. you've never been to Chicago, you should visit. It's a beautiful place. So does this mean relocation for you when you can? It means a relocation while I'm working. But yeah. uh, no, I head back to warm climes uh, in <laughs> Southern California, and and currently I'm actually I'm 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 sort of toying with the idea of moving moving. I don't know where to. You know. Okay. And London is such a beautiful city. Uh, now that <clears throat> to get. Not too political, but now that you're leaving the uh, EU, I don't know that they'll allow me to come to London and, and be here for a while. You're I, welcome here. You, well, we'll, thank we'll you, always Chris. offer you sanctuary. Thank you. A, sanctu- <laughs> a sanctuary city. London is now. London is my kind of town. London is. But look around you, Carl. Look at this, this gray, depressing booth. Oh, Would you really is, want to be here? Is you know something? Uh, this kind of reminds me of my bedroom. Now, what does that tell you about <laughs> me? My gray, depressing bedroom. You have a no. recording studio in your bedroom. This well, is yeah. not quite. Not okay. quite. But I do listen to my talk to myself and listen to myself a lot. So there you are. <laughs> um, can I just journey back into your, your past a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Um, because uh, here at Empire, we're mad about movies and... Uh, Mad about some movies in particular. One of them is Predator, oh. uh, which is a film I absolutely adore. Uh, and there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that movie yeah. in particular. Uh, the shoot itself, because you yeah. actually guys are actually in the jungle. We were. Uh, which is It wasn't crazy. Vancouver doubling for the jungle. Vancouver. It wasn't a green screen. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Little, it was you know, the real deal. A couple of fronds on a green screen. Yeah, exactly. The real deal. Mm. And uh, what was that experience like for you? Because it must have been insane at times. It was of- insane at times, but in a good way. Yeah. Do you know, when you're a young actor and you get a chance to do things like that, you know, like Predator, and you get a chance, let's face it, to run around the jungle with a bunch of guys and not have to really <laughs> worry about makeup, not have to worry about sweat, not have to worry about being stinky. Yeah. I mean, come on, smoking cigars, <laughs> you know, drinking good booze. Uh, it was a fun time, and we had 
we had really a wonderful director in John McTiernan. And, you know, what added to that experience was, and not a lot of people talk about these things, but what added to it was, first of all, being in the jungle on location. We were in Mexico, uh, which is not a bad location. And we were in Puerto Vallarta, which is really not a bad location, okay? <laughs> in you know, by day in the jungle, by night in the jungla, which was the disco at the time, okay, okay? La Jungla. Okay. Uh, and there really was a disco named La Jungla, Amazing. which was interesting. Uh, but... Um, we had a crew that it consisted of Americans, mm-hmm. Mexicans, and Australians, a huge crew. And so those three diverse cultures, diverse uh, uh, citizens from around the world, mm-hmm. just made the experience that much more fun. Because, you know, you get a chance to interact with people that you probably wouldn't on a day-to-day basis. And there we are two, two and a half months, yeah. you know, eating together, sweating together, laughing together, <laughs> you know. Uh, it was just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And our producer, the great Joel Silver, yes. uh, who's, you know, for those of you who really love movies would know everything from... Um, my God. Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop. Jabba Jack Flash, the great Action Jackson. Action Jackson. Uh, A Predator. Absolutely. Uh, You said Matrix. I mean, you know, some great, great movies. Yeah. Uh, Was our producer. And uh, it was just an an amazing, it was an amazing time to make movies. You know, an amazing time. There's some some interesting stories I've heard about Predator. Uh, Possibly apocryphal. Maybe you can help clear them up. Yeah. Uh, One is that obviously... Seven tough guys. Well, six tough guys and Shane Black. No, six cast. tough guys and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, that six guy. tough Who is that guys guy? and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and there was a, a sense of competitiveness, shall we say, on set. And you <sighs> would tell the other your castmates that your uh, your muscles were were natural. You didn't have to work out, but you would get I up in the morning. I didn't just tell them that. That was absolutely true. Well, that's my not muscles what I've heard. were natural. I've heard that you got up in the morning, worked out. And then didn't tell they were, about that. They were naturally pumped up. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I'd go into the gym and and uh, look. Uh, the you know Arnold took a gym everywhere. Yeah. Okay. That's why he was paid the big bucks. Okay. He could move his gym, <laughs> and I discovered that he had a gym in the uh, hotel in which we were staying. And of course, once I discovered that, I uh, insinuated myself on one particular day, and when I realized that you could easily get to the key mm-hmm. i started getting up really early find the key go in and work out uh-huh. well you know the one thing about training is that you train hard you start to look like you're training hard these guys weren't dummies they knew that wait a minute so now they start to get up earlier arnold uh-huh. yeah after Arnold, everybody else discovers there's a gym there, and you got Jesse, and you got Bill Duke, and you got all the entire group. Yeah. Everybody's trying to one up each other going in. <laughs> so eventually, you know, I mean, call time might be seven or eight o'clock in the morning, and getting up at four and four thirty to go work out <laughs> because you can't have these guys look better than you. You know, I, I had to be pumped. My guns had to be right for the man shake because uh, I can't have Arnold Schwarzenegger one upping me. It's just <laughs> no way, no way. Let's clear clear something up once and for all. Could you really have won that arm wrestling contest? What do you mean, could I have? 
it was scripted that I that I I lost. <laughs> I'd beat him in rehearsals five or six times. Come on, <laughs> you know. Mid air, that's tough. Yeah, well, that's a tough one. He's a girly man. What can I say? <laughs> he's a girly man. <laughs> uh, and I just want to ask as well about. Sonny Landon. What are your memories of working with him? Oh wow, Sonny. Sonny was a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, you know the the story. The story is actually a true story. Sonny, mm. uh, Sonny was really a wild man. Mm. You know, and if the rest of us were were rambunctious, he was like out of his mind, wild man. So the company, Joe Silver, producer, hired a bodyguard. Yes. That was with Sonny. And the reason the bodyguard was hired was not to keep people away from Sonny, but to keep Sonny away from people. <laughs> That's how wild he was. Uh, so it was it was an interesting group of personalities, you know. Shane Black, of course, the great writer of Lethal Weapon and so many other great movies. And um, Last Boy Scout, to name a couple, is now currently, he's written uh, this new incarnation of Predator. And yes. they're, they're already shooting in the remake of that. And I'm sure it's going to be spectacular if Shane's behind the scenes, you know, working the strings on this. Uh, but he was, you know, I think it might have been the first movie he ever acted in. And he was a bit odd. Shane's an odd guy, though, anyway. He's a writer. <laughs> He's cloaked away in some room somewhere for hours on end. And uh, and then a whole host of guys. I mean, uh, uh, my God, um, Bill Duke. Yeah. Bill Duke, what a what a what a great human being, and he became a director as well. Yeah, he's a wonderful yeah. director, in yeah. fact. But what a what a crazy crazy guy. <laughs> I mean, look, this is this is Bill Duke, whom I love, by the way. But we're remember now we're in Puerto Vallarta. It's hotter than hell. Yeah, it's humid. It's everything that you could think when you go on holiday. What do you wear? You wear shorts, t-shirt, flip flops. When we're not working. Bill Duke, Bill Duke is in tailored suit and tie. <laughs> I'm not lying, man. I'm not lying. We went out for dinner a couple times, and Bill Duke looked like he was going to visit the Queen at Buckingham Palace. I mean, he did. He is just, you know, sartorial splendor is wow. Bill Duke, you know. Amazing. And then, and then Jesse Ventura. I'm not talking, speaking out of school here, but yeah. these were back in the wrestling days. So here we are again in Puerto Vallarta. What is Jesse Ventura dressed in? Spandex tights, leopard skin tights. I'm not lying. A muscle shirt, a boa. Uh huh. You know wow. those feathery boas that yeah. that people wear. Wow. And a beret and these glasses with sparkles on them, sunglasses with sparkles on them, and cowboy boots. This was just. I mean, just that picture, right? That's so weird. That's my Friday outfit. If well, you, if you were here tomorrow, that's it, huh? That's well, what I have. Well, you and Jesse could definitely have hung back in the day. Let me tell you, man. Uh, you know, and then the only sane person I say in the group uh, was was yours truly. I mean, the rest yeah. of them were all bent, just really bent. <laughs> <laughs> they were extraordinary, extraordinary. Um, I have to talk about Apollo Creed as well. Um, just an amazing, amazing character. Yeah. Uh, well, looking back on those films, what does that character mean for you? And wow. Well, man, forty years later, yeah, when people still embrace a character and embrace, embrace a movie, uh, they've obviously embraced the franchise. Um. You know, what is there, what can you say except how lucky am I 
that I was in the right place at the right time, uh, genetically endowed with, you know, the ability to pull off this character physically. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, had enough acting chops to be able to try to add some nuance to something that could have been a caricature. Absolutely. You know, um, but, um, you know, what do you say, man? I was just very fortunate. I'd been an athlete and had that ability and uh, was lucky enough that that role at that time was not given to, you know, the kind of people they wanted because they didn't want me. They wanted a, a star. Yeah. They wanted an athlete who was well known. They wanted a boxer who could act. And as it turned out, uh, none of that worked out. And there I happened to be, a guy who in his 20s was just lucky enough, and I'm really aging myself in my early, <laughs> early 20s, that is, uh, who uh, was there and um, who was able to pull it off and who had the good fortune to uh, work with really good actors. Of course, we all remember a guy named Sylvester Stallone. Uh, yeah, rings you know, a bell. Just rings, rings a bell, yeah. yeah. And Talia Shire mm -hmm. and uh, Burt Young and the great Burgess Meredith uh, got a chance to work with them. And we had a wonderful director in John Avelson who directed some spectacular low-budget movies. A tremendous director who just had the ability to make a low-budget movie look like it costs so much more and to be able to direct an actor as well. And a lot of directors can't do that, you know? They know how to put the camera in a particular place and... Yeah and do all the technical stuff, but they're not necessarily good acting directors. And John just had that uh, capability to do both. And uh, also inspired a lot of trust, you know, because as a young actor, he, he, if you're left to your own devices, God only knows what you'll turn out. <laughs> I mean, it's true, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, he, you know, I, I, was, I was at the time I was a student of acting. Of course, I majored in theater. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and I'd done some movies at that point and a lot of television at that point, uh, ep episodic television as guest starring on a lot of shows that were very big during the day, you know, uh, during that, that time. But uh, to step into a movie and have no idea that it's going to be as big as it is, I thought it was going to be successful. I really did. You know, mm. and out of the mouths of babes, I told someone I thought it was going to be as big as Jaws. <laughs> now, that shows you how ignorant I really was because Jaws was, man, it was you huge. You weren't far off. Well, you weren't far you, off. Uh, here's an anecdote for you, though. Um, I was, after, after we finished Rocky, I was doing an episode of a show called Streets of San Francisco oh. because Rocky hadn't come out yet, right? Gotcha. Yeah, and I did. I was one of the repertory players on all of Quinn Martin's shows back then, and he did uh, Streets of San Francisco and Barnaby Jones and uh, Cannon and a few other shows, and I did all of those shows. And back then, you could be a good guy in the beginning of the season, and by the end of the season, you're a bad guy, <laughs> or reverse it. You're, you're a cop and you're a criminal in the same year, you know? But uh, I was doing an episode of Streets, in San and we were shooting, of course, in San Francisco, and I was sitting out between takes on the pier uh, getting makeup touch-ups. And a young guy comes walking down the pier, and he's working on the same show. And a young, attractive guy, handsome guy, blonde, and he walks up to me, and he recognizes me, and he tells me, oh, wow. Uh, that movie, Rocky, you did, really, really, I saw a screening of it. 
it's really great. It's going to be huge, you know? And I said, yeah, we think it's going to be. And I'm some, somewhat modest, but I'm telling you, I think it's going to be as big as Jaws. And he says to me, well, I just finished a little movie, and I think it's going to be as big as Rocky. And I said, what was that? And he said, it's Star Wars, called Star Wars. <laughs> and it was Mark Hamill. So out of the mouths of babes, you never know, man. You never wow. know. But, you know, when you do something and you think, just there, and you think it's going to be really good. Yeah. Well. You know. Amazing, amazing. 40 years later, here we are. 40 years later, it, and yeah. of course, Creed came out, mm. and I love that film. I thought it was amazing. Did really well. Yeah. And um, I mean, uh, to have so many actors who come that much longer after you mm. and sort of pick up the mantle, and uh, a director who writes a script and creates a, a world there that, again, is just as great as, you know, the original. And to have Sly do some of the best work he's ever done. Absolutely. I mean, ever yeah. done. Uh, you know, I really thought he should have won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. It Likewise. was that good because the the nuance in that role, that character and the the pathos and, and uh, I mean, he really brought tears to my eyes with mm. that character, you know? Mm. And um, and I know the guy, so that's hard <laughs> hard to do, bring tears to my eyes. Uh, Absolutely. But yeah. I really think he brought tears wonderful. to a lot of people's eyes when uh, when Apollo died in, in Rocky Four. I've Certainly heard that many traumatic times. Traumatic experience for me. I've heard it many, many times. I had someone come up to me in an airport many, many years ago, and this has happened many times. It's been repeated. But a, a guy came up to me with his family and a beautiful family, you know, they kind of look like, like, uh, they could have walked out of one of those magazines as, you know, the, one of those typical families that you see. And, uh, he had a couple kids and his wife and he walked up to me and stopped me in the airport and said, you know, I want to tell you, I cried and my family cried when you died. And I found that compliment to be one that stuck with me all this time, because wow. if you can deliver something that really moves people to that extent, mm. and when you think about it, the Apollo Creed character in the very beginning was, for many, a villain. Yeah. He was a bad yeah. guy. And to make this arc, to complete this arc, and to get to the place where, my God, you, you, you were devastated when that character goes, you know, um, I feel pretty good about the work that I do as a result of that, because that's what we want to do. We want to, you know, touch you, man. And, and it was, uh, it was, it was fantastic to, you know, over the years hear that from people. And that was Mark Hamill in the airport as well, was it? <laughs> no, that was <laughs> very good, very good, Chris. No, that wasn't Mark. Uh, and the last thing, Carl, is you, you said a few minutes ago that the the running around and jumping days are behind you. Yeah. But we at Empire, we've never made a movie, but we we a few years ago, as a thing, we we went to a producer and pitched some oh fake boy. movies. Oh boy! Oh All right, boy. okay. Now I just want to tell you about yeah. this really quickly. One of the movies we pitched was called Unlandable Two: Colon Upgrade colon holding pattern with Carl Weathers that's the title that's the title this is okay. on the internet this is a true thing I want oh. to pitch this movie to you and see if you're interested in okay. it okay so the movie is folks wait a minute before you go on Chris yep. wait wait no, okay, yeah. do you know how many times an actor walks into a place and somebody wants to pitch him a movie well, how many times how many happens? times has the actor been pitched a movie where his name is in the title uh, of the never, movie never never but I'm just saying almost you know, never oh, this is brilliant unless go. you're John Malkovich go well that's uh, okay. true being John Malkovich yeah well, I should have I should have worked in that movie you should be being Carl Weathers I should 
should have been no. I should have been being in John Malkovich. I should have been the guy who was being John Malkovich. You should have been that. perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So uh, we're we're on a plane. Yes. Okay. Uh, a magician, a wizard, an evil wizard casts a, a terrible spell on the passengers. Everyone in economy is turned into vampires. Everyone in premium. I don't economy, fly economy. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, okay. We'll, we'll get to the good part. <laughs> okay. Everyone in premium economy is turned into werewolves, and everyone in business class is turned into zombies. I won't fly okay. in business class now either. Now You're that the I know they turned into zombies. You are the pilot. I am the pilot. The heroic pilot who is oh untouched God. by the spell. Okay. And you must team up with someone who was upgraded from economy oh my God. to business class and has oh become God. a zombie vampire. Carl, are you in? Wow. We don't have a script or anything or we can't pay you, but are you in? Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll be in if mm-hmm. I can have Halle Berry is the person... <laughs> Who has moved up from economy <laughs> to business class? To business class. Okay. I just want to be next to Halle Berry. I'm sorry. Okay. She will be in makeup as a zombie. Oh, let me tell you, man. If you can pull Harry Berry, Halle Berry into this mix, I'm in. It's done. Let's go. All right. Next time you're in London, we'll have the script ready. Halle will be on board. I love it. It's all good. Let's go, Chris. Let's go. Carl Weathers, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. My so much. pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so that was Carl Weathers in 2017, and now here is a junky excerpt from my most recent chat with the great man in which he discusses his work directing the most recent episode of The Mandalorian. Enjoy. Uh, before we begin, it's a cracking episode. I've, I've watched it twice already today. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm really, really pleased with uh, just everything the team did. And I mean, it was, uh, it was really uh, one of those undertakings where the deeper we got into it, the more intricate you could see that it was and still to keep the fun and the energy of Star Wars material along with uh, capitalizing on these wonderful talents we had in front of the camera, uh, Grief Karga being just one of the most amazing of them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just, I just was a very, I, I got a lucky draw. You know, John, John handed me that script and that was a lucky draw, man. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting because I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask about how episodes are assigned because you, this episode looks like you had a blast playing Grief Karga. It looks like you had a blast directing it. But I also, I was watching it, Carl, going, would you have preferred an episode that you weren't also starring in as well? So how did this episode come your way? Well, the way John assigns, I have no idea. I, I didn't ask. I asked too many questions, so I have to find a point where I back off a bit and not become too intrusive. So I don't know how he came to this one for me. I suspect, I suspect John is a very, really bright guy. You know, and I don't mean that as, as we talk about a lot of people, they're, oh, they're really smart and all that. Yes, he's that, but he's really aware. And he really has a good sense of things. So I would suspect that part of it was his sense of the people who were going to direct episodes. And what was it about them that he could capture as, as a producer and that he thought that particular director would maybe uh, bring the best of himself or herself uh, to the work to give that episode the kind of juice it needed, you know? Mm-hmm. 
I know if I were producing, I, I would approach it to a certain degree that way. You know, uh, everyone has different sensibilities, regardless of your, your talent and your ability to, uh, to work the craft of directing. Mm-hmm. But how do you work with certain people and try to get the best out of them while telling the story, you know, which is obviously the point telling the Mm. story. So, you know, that's how I think, uh, I think one would, would go about assigning the different episodes unless it was just, okay, I got a crapshoot here. Who'd I go with or who's available? (laughs) You know, I mean, there's that too. Uh, but early on, you know, I, I requested and let him know that I was really interested in directing. Yeah. that was uh, during season one. I let him know that actually before before I really signed on, I let him know because we 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 know each other through the Directors Guild, of which I'm a member and have been since '93. And uh, of course, he's a member, and uh, I've been on the board and on the Western Council, and mm. uh, so we met that way. So that's you know that's kind of the backstory on all that now relative to directing and being in front of the camera in the same show, as opposed to directing and not being in front of the camera. I think being in front of the camera, I've done it once before, but this time, because we have so many parts and moving parts to the Mandalorian, the unbelievable artists who put all the uh, sets together that you see, virtual and otherwise, you know, actual, and how then through the magnificent computer graphic people, how it's all married and is so seamlessly presented to the audience. Mm. Uh, to the, the actual talent in front of the camera, to uh, the wonderful DP that I got a chance to work with, Matt Jensen, yeah. to uh, editor Jeff Sivanek, um, uh, to even Gorenson's music and this and the sound effects. I mean, man, what help you get when you have all those people come in, you know, uh, and really kind of put. I, I, it, it was almost as if you have an empty house and they bring all the furniture in. <laughs> you know, you build a house. You, you paint, you design, you do all that stuff, and, and then you open the door for the first time and you see it all and it's just a bu- big, beautiful room. But then somebody comes in and they decorate it, you know? Yes. And uh, being, being in front of the camera as I'm directing gives me kind of a dual view. It gives me a view within the scene as I'm moving around and, and doing my best to make sure that working with the other actors, I can create pictures that are engaging, the visual is engaging, and sort of gauge with the different body types and sizes, how all that's going to look, you know, mm. uh, on a particular set and then given in a particular environment. And then I have the ability, obviously, to stand back, let the guy who, who is actually a stand-in for me walk through it, and I can see it. And then I have playback, which there's a great, you know, advantage to being able to 
record what you're doing, shoot it, and then going and if you have the time and if you need to go and look at a monitor and say, yeah, no, that's not quite what I wanted or this, you know, is what I want or let's move on or whatever the case may be. When you're not in the scene and you're behind the camera, it's a different, uh, it's a different exercise and a different kind of eyeball you utilize. It has its own kind of luxuries. You, you don't have to worry about your makeup. You don't yes. have to worry, yes. worry about your wardrobe. You don't have to worry about what you look like, you know, sucking in your gut. I mean, you don't have to worry about that <laughs> stuff. You know, I, and the reason I say that is I love a lot of the old movies and the old black and white movies with, you know, these wonderful, wonderful movie stars who like are in their 40s and 50s, man. And guy's got to go without a shirt and you see him holding in and he doesn't even breathe. You know what I mean? Because yeah. if he does plop, you know, uh, but it's just, uh, it's just all that stuff, just being aware of it and being conscious of it feeds into what you're doing. Uh, you know, that's kind of the inside view because a lot of people, are, you know, who are watching this are, are, uh, fans of the show. Yeah. You know, that just works for them or it doesn't work in the story. But for us, it's all these little details, you know, so in terms of those little details and in terms of the, the script, because John writes the, the script for most of the episodes, yeah. uh, how much input do you have as director? How much how much can you shape the story and shape the episode and shape where grief goes, for example, as, as, as the episode goes on? Well, I mean, there's a certain amount of input, but, but my experience with John and usually in, in television and streaming, you don't get a lot of time to work with a script. It's handed to you. Uh, it is 98, 99% there usually, you know, uh, and you can find maybe places to tweak or you can look at the way you're going to shoot something and decide what is really pertinent information that, a, that a, an audience needs in order for them to really get the story mm -hmm. or how much attention you need to put on certain parts of the story. So that's always input in that way as a director. But, you know, the collaborative part of this whole thing, you know, movie making, streaming shows, television, whatever it is, the visual medium, there is the script, and then there's shooting the movie, and then there's making the movie. <laughs> so right down to editing in post-production is when so often adjustments are being made. Uh, so you could, you know, theoretically shoot, my God, so much more than you actually see on screen. And when it goes through that process of editing and the producers and the execs look at it and say, you know, we don't need that. We don't need this. We don't need that. You can wind up with something hopefully much better because it's leaner. Unfortunately, there are times where it's not better. You know, you get all those, uh, all those uh, folks after the fact who want to put their stamp on it, their imprimatur yeah. on it, and maybe not do so well with it. But I was lucky, man, in this one, because I think at every step of the way, having really great producers, uh, John and Dave, John, you know, Favreau and Dave Filoni, and then hmm. having, uh, all of the wonderful people that we work with uh, just improved at each step. And whatever comments I had uh, that worked, 
It's just part of the process. There's a few specific things from the episode that I wanted to dig into, Carl. Uh, and I, the episode has been up, we're talking now, the episode has been up for about 10 hours. Yes. Uh, and the last time I checked, Twitter was having a lot of fun with Baby Yoda from this episode. There is a, uh, that's what I'm going to call the child, but um, I don't I know what you call it. it. Baby, okay, but yeah, people call it Baby <laughs> okay. Yoda. I just call it the baby. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Oh, the, kid. Uh, the kid. Let's go with the baby or the kid. Uh, that, that's, yeah. Let's go with that. Uh, because this is a very fun episode for the baby. And uh, I imagine you relished an awful lot of that. So we, we have we have the baby trying to eat macarons. We have the, the baby being a terrible mechanic. And we have, yes. of course, Carl... You know, raising his arms in jubilation. And also, we have to talk about Baby Yoda being sick. As a director, where did that come from and how, how much fun was it directing that character for you? Well, first of all, I fell in love with the baby in the first season. And clearly, uh, audiences did too. So when this episode came around, my request with John was to have more of the baby, you know? I know what the show is about. It's called The Mandalorian. So that sort of <laughs> takes care of that. But his sidekick, his, um, his ward, you know, his little, his little being that accompanies him on his journey, on his adventures, has this, this sweetness, has this obviously childlike quality that we all love in little ones, you know, before they can say no <laughs> and, and, and throw things and all that and have tantrums, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, when I read the script, um, one of my comments and, and it's, I think, I hope it was a real contribution was to ask John to put more of the baby in there, you know? And, it wasn't just me wanting to, to somehow uh, tinker with the script, but there was something about the, the journey that we're on that is fraught with danger and is very action, obviously, very action-oriented. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, weapons fire and, and bad guys going down and chases and all that good stuff. Explosions. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's like a panoply of all the good stuff in action movies, right? But there's also with the baby, this gentler, softer, uh, sweeter side that comes out of everyone who interacts with the baby. And that to me was just a wonderful balance. So having more of him, of it, because I'm not sure what its sex is, and I don't think it matters because it's so sweet. You know, uh, and John crafted these scenes so beautifully. Uh, I was fortunate in that I got that one scene with the baby that made me happy. You know, <laughs> um, so uh, I, you know, I, I'm a fan of the babies. Also, you know, of the kid, I'm a real fan, and uh, would love to see even more of him. Or it the, the the scene not to dwell too much on it, Carl. Obviously, but the the scene where where the baby does throw up yes. uh, was that a was that a practical effect? Was that something added later? Uh, how did you how did you manage no, that? No, that 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 was practical, but uh, that was way down the road in a in a shooting. You know, the whole thing with the with the 
I don't know if it was a macaroon or a, the almond tasting things. I know macaroon, yes. that, but, yeah. but there's a, I forget the name of the thing. But at any rate, uh, the thing that made it work was the combination of the color. And you never expect that that's where it's going to go. But, you know, with twirl, 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 I mean, eventually we'd all go, you know. So it made it so sweet. And also, what, what happens with babies when they, you know, partake a little too much of certain things mm-hmm. that aren't right for their stomachs? You know, it's like, bleh. and um, And then, of course, the Mandalorian was, you know, Treated it as we would all treat our our little ones, you know? (laughs) I just think there's so much in this episode for so many people and different age groups, which is the thing I love, you know, because what I've become so aware of as I I mature (laughs) is that, uh, you know, people are really, really careful and concerned about what their children are being fed. Yeah. You know, whether it's through the media or or actual food that that is going into their bodies. I mean, it's all going into our bodies, actually, whether it's visual or not. But it's good to have something, I think, where you can have that combination and you can sit with your children and watch The Mandalorian. And certainly you can watch episode 12, The Siege. Because it's built for children. <laughs> the child in me loved it. Yeah. Well, it's built for children, but it's also built, I think, for really hardcore Star Wars fans. Oh. I was watching the episode and I was thinking it's such a it's such a deliberate throwback. You have yes. characters, you have TIE fighters, you have speeder bikes, you have characters running around an Imperial base shooting stormtroopers. You say at one point, you say something like, can't this thing go any faster, which is such a quintessential yes. Star Wars line. Yes, yes. Harrison yeah. Ford would have been screaming that, can't this thing go any faster? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was something you were very much leaning into as a director in this episode. Oh, absolutely. Because look, first of all, the real hardcore fans know who Dave Filoni is. Maybe a lot of people who tuned into The Mandalorian and, and are enjoying it wouldn't know who Dave Filoni is. Dave Filoni, one of our producers, is also a director uh, on the first season and this season. Mm-hmm. And Dave has been at the right hand of the Star Wars inventor, you know, since mm. Dave worked there. Uh, so he knows everything about Star Wars. I mean, he's like an encyclopedia. So I had, what a resource there. And of course, John knows an awful lot. And he's got Dave's ear. And the two of them can conjure up all kinds of little nuggets to tuck into the episodes that you wouldn't even think of, really, if you were just writing a script that was a one-off. But the research that goes into these things and the callbacks that goes in with just a little visual, you know, with the the emblem going down on the t- it's like, what does that mean? It means something to people who are really hardcore Star Wars people, you know. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of beautiful little little elements in the siege that will bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. As you said, I think it really is hearkening back to the, the, the Star Wars iconography and the Star Wars uh, 
language, for lack of a better word. Carl Weathers, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I had a great time speaking with you. Likewise. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And now, after talking to Carl Weathers, it's time to talk Carl Weathers. I love the man. There is a reason why my great unmade opus upgrade to colon unlandable colon holding pattern with Carl Weathers has Carl Weathers' name in the title. His presence is non-negotiable. But as great a fan of the man as I am, Terry White, who has seen Rocky Four 300 times and has probably shed salt tears at the passing of Apollo Creed every single time. Spoiler. Isn't even... Yes, he, by the way, he dies in Rocky IV. <laughs> um, I think people... I think I think people know that by now. Um, he also dies in Predator. Um, but, what? Uh, oh, and, uh, and Happy Gilmore. Oh, oh Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my... What's happening? Uh, Terry, you're an even bigger fan. Now you have just under 10 minutes. Go. <laughs> I mean, look... <laughs> I genuinely, and people have taken the piss out of me about this for years. Will I let that stop me? No, because Apollo Creed is one of the most brilliantly complex, nuanced depictions of masculinity and of that kind of masculinity within sport and within sports movies that I think cinema has. The way he treats his um, wife and his children, which isn't great, another spoiler. Um, But really, Mm -hmm. it's it's all down to his relationship with Rocky, his relationship with Tony, that father-son relationship. But, and I hate to say it, the relationship with himself. He has the single greatest speech in any Rocky movie, right? And it's in Rocky Four when he's discussing why he wants to take on Ivan Drago. Rocky's trying to talk him out of it. He's trying to convince Rocky to help train him. You know, like he helped train him beat Clubber Lang in Rocky Three, And he does mm-hmm. this incredible... Um, speech about why he can't just not do it. Why can't he stop? Because, and it's the speech where he says, you know, we always have to be in the middle of the action because we're the warriors. And without some challenge, without some damn water fight, then the warrior might as well be dead. And that's the speech which convinces Rocky that he will train him, he will stand in his corner. And it really gets mm-hmm. to the heart of why people like boxers and men whose sport and destiny is caught up in their physicality, why they can't just walk away from it. And I think it's in the writing, obviously. I think Stallone nails this concept. And people often say Apollo Creed is cocky and egotistical and he is all of those things and I love actually by the way the story on how he got the gig which is he went in to read for Apollo Creed and they said oh the writer's gonna read with you and pointed at Rocky um, Sylvester Stallone, sorry, he is Rocky, let's be honest. And, um, it's, it's a mistake many people They make. read together and um, Carl Weathers said he didn't think it went particularly well. And he was just like, well, if you actually gave me a proper actor to read with, then maybe I'd do a better job. And Stallone was like, bingo, that is exactly the kind of thing that Apollo Creed would do. And it's, it is that charm <laughs> and that arrogance and that belief. But I think he's fascinating and the way his character changes, but also doesn't change over the course of the films the guy we meet in two and and what he becomes to Rocky in three, how he helps him rediscover the eye of the tiger, how he helps him rediscover the boxer and the man 
that he is. And then, you know, I think in four, that was always going to be his destiny. If you'd have told him during that speech, you are going to die, I think he'd still have gone ahead with it because for him, not fighting, Mm. not being in the ring, not having all the fanfare and James Brown and the dancing girls and the American flag, not having those things would be a living death to a fighter like Apollo Creed. I think his story arc, his character arc, our perfection. I just think he's one of the most brilliantly drawn male characters in film. I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely do. And I think without him being nailed in the way he have, we'd have never got Adonis. And I think he's the the lineage in a character sense, in a rich characterization sense, so much of that heavy lifting is done by Apollo Creed. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. and also his absence from Rocky Five. I think is because the character dies in Rocky Four. I can't, I can't quite remember. Ghost, uh, but that Bin ghost. is ghost. This should Bin have, ghost. He comes back as a ghost. He comes mm. back as a ghost in Happy Gilmore. So why couldn't he why have cameoed he? as a ghost in Rocky Five? Um, Rocky Balboa kind of gets past the the absence of of Apollo, but you know Rocky Five really feels it. Suggestion: What they could have done had him possess the robot. Mm, but that but gives him physical presence you know something to work with maybe he could have been there you know they had the bin famous bin fight right so at the end of five he could have like been liking ghost when patrick swayze starts to disrupt objects and knocks over a bin he could have like been a distraction he could have been bin ghost I may, have, I may, I may have lost my thread, but <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's totally no, fine. No, but, but you're no. right as well. And his his shadow, his ghost, does haunt the other movies. Rocky Five, maybe uh, aside, but it, you know, there's a sense of it in Rocky Balboa, and certainly, mm. obviously, Creed and Creed Two. Mm. Uh, you know, where he is such a huge presence in both Rocky's lives, uh, Rocky's life, and also Adonis's life as well. Uh, I, 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 I still get sad every single time. I watch that and uh, yeah. do you blame Rocky for him dying for delaying for delaying the, the for towel not throwing throw? the towel no because you know the, and you saw and they made it very clear there's a shot where Apollo is getting pummeled and he looks over at Rocky and shakes his head and says no that mm-hmm. that destiny was set for me there was no version of that where Rocky threw the towel and you know it got stopped one punch earlier um, and it, Tony doesn't blame him either and I think that that period when Rocky feels a huge sense of guilt I don't think he feels literal guilt for not throwing the towel one punch earlier I think what he feels is a responsibility that he did agree to support him and that actually mm. he may have been the only one who could have actually stopped him um, and he didn't at all. And I think also, you know, that their relationship through the four movies is just so well drawn. And the, the interesting thing that Stallone never does is that he never defaults to villainy uh, with Apollo mm. Creed. He is never that. He is, uh, you know, he is a braggart. He is swaggering. He is glorious. He is all these things, but he's never the bad guy. I mean, we have to wait for Rocky Three. Yeah, since I like Clubber uh, yeah, Lang, yeah, right? I that guess was, we did. Clubber Lang was given all the tropes, all the very offensive mm-hmm. tropes, actually, and was really mm. painted in such a two-dimensional way. And, mm. but, you know, arguably Ivan Drago, right? He's a monosyllabic mm. Russian physical machine. I must break you. He gets you. 11, <laughs> what is it, 11? 
lines i don't know like something mm, like that. that so you know yeah. i think that i think there is that element in rocky but i think this this relationship and friendship and brotherhood and father and son at times he becomes mickey when there is no mickey um yeah. that richness rocky needs that and he needs that other person who isn't adrian to kind of for the film to work emotionally it's what i've always loved about the rocky films is that it doesn't put the love story front and center and and kind of forsake other relationships Rocky's most interesting relationships are with other men. Hmm. Yeah, and there's also there's also a thread. I know we've got to let you go in a second, but uh, it feels like I'm doing an interview. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to let you go in a second. Just twenty five well, last the Rocky questions. Rocky expert here, you, you know. <laughs> yeah. You have to. yeah, but you know, there's a, there is a sense throughout the movies that you know he, that that relationship is so well drawn, and as I said, he's not villainized in any way. He doesn't become the bad guy, but the way that that relationship progresses, you know, in Rocky Two, there's that sort of there's still adversaries, but there's that sense of mutual respect, mm. as seen in the hospital and whatnot, and then we go into Rocky Three where the real kernel of friendship really begins to to form, uh, which leads, of course, you know, the, you know, to the fast friendship of and the tragedy of, of Rocky IV. Mm. Beautifully drawn. They're yeah. kind of the Nadal and Federer rather than the, you know, Federer and Djokovic, if you will. <laughs> Put it in terms of a sport I understand. You okay. know, they're, they're, rival, they're rivals who really, really deeply respect each other rather than people who just fight each as other. As different as Apollo thinks they are in Rocky, what he comes to learn and what brings them together, what gives them a kinship is their deep kind of connection with the sport and what it represents. And it's why that speech I started with is so important because they do see themselves as as warriors and there mm. does always have to be a fight to be won. And I think the recurring thing still in Creed with Rocky is who he is outside of being a boxer and, and what is life outside of, of that. And I think that's something it's always grappled with at its heart, which is these men live and die for boxing, for what it represents to them, for what for who and what it makes them. And without it, you know, they I think Rocky still struggles with who he is as a man, mm. not a fighter. And the last thing uh, before I let you go, Terry, uh, is what attracted you to the project? And, uh, and can you have her email address? Yeah, can you? Yes, can I have her email address? And, uh, and can you give me a classic scene, please? No, um, we're talking here, and he's got iconic roles, and he's an amazing. He's a really good actor, Carl Weathers, and we'll get into that uh, hopefully later on as well. He's got Apollo Creed, as like that that sort of roll call he did at the beginning. Apollo Creed, Dylan from Predator, you know, Chubbs from Happy Gilmore, Grief Cargo for the love of God, Action Jackson, which should have been a franchise and 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 <laughs> wasn't. You know, and he's he's iconic, but I also get the impression that he should have been a much bigger star than he was. What, what do you what do you well, think about I, that? I saw a really great interview with him, um, which was probably around a decade after he'd done the Rocky films. And he said that he felt like it was a bit of a poisoned chalice. You know, he was 27 when he did Rocky, so was really kind of in his prime as an actor. And I think he's, his perspective was that he kind of got not even typecast as a boxer, but people, he became so indelible and so, everybody thought of him as Apollo Creed. And he thought that gave producers and he thought that gave um, directors pause when casting him because they couldn't Mm. see beyond him being Apollo and they didn't particularly want Apollo in his films. And he definitely thought that the the film and the success of Apollo was both a blessing and a curse and that he may have had a much bigger career in some senses had he not done the Rocky franchise. Although the other thing is, you know, there weren't a lot of leading man action roles for black mm. men in the in the eighties. 
in the 70s and 80s. And I wonder if he would have, if that was a factor as well, you know, because even Denzel didn't start until the 90s. And even then there was this myth that Denzel doesn't sell overseas, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe that's one of the reasons why Action Jackson, which is a you know a, a thoroughly fun, I'm not you know it's not it's not the the second coming of action, but it's it's a load of fun. Uh, maybe that's why it didn't become a franchise. Yeah. But I remember when it came out, everyone, everyone, everyone in my school, you know, that's how old I am. Everyone in my school was was really digging it, you know. But it's one of those things. But he became, I think, defined by his his relationship to to other actors, usually mm-hmm. muscle bound. But now he's he's busting out. Now he's Carl Weathers, and he, you know, baby, that's how you get a stew going. It's great. Terry, thank you for your, your uh, I'm going to say, um, participation and, uh, and and your involvement in this. It's been awesome. But it's time to throw, throw in the towel. Throw, <laughs> throw in the, the towel. towel. Thank you. Bye. See you soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Bye, Terry. <laughs> Good Lord. And like that, she was gone. gone. She's gone. <laughs> <laughs> she reminds me, we must do a Kevin Spacey episode of one of these. Um, <laughs> Orcs. <laughs> uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't think so, somehow. Um, anyway, Carl Weathers. I fell in love with him as Apollo Creed. I suspect you guys are Dylan stands. Hello. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. More so for me than Apollo is 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 Dylan. Just that, I mean, but the whole film, but that bit at the beginning, like when he comes in and we reference it, the sort of the, the sort of like high five turned arm wrestle uh, oh. that they do is just one of. And I don't think this is overstating things. It is probably the greatest single scene in the whole of history of cinema. And you know, I don't think that's overstating it. It's Whatever, extraordinary. Whatever, deep focus, Citizen Kane. <laughs> They're, yeah, fuck Citizen Kane. So no one goes, Lawrence you Arabia. son of a bitch. And like they're fucking oiled biceps straining on each other. It's See, if, if in the seventh seal, uh, Bergman had had death and right. Max von Sydow do a, do a, like a massive just arm wrestle instead, maybe that would have assured that film's place in the cinematic After life got you pushing too many pencils. <laughs> I'm sorry, you just sounded like a character in What We Do in the Shadows. I don't know what went on with the accent there, but it definitely wasn't half Austria. Half vampire, half Arnold. <laughs> Oh my God! Have we just pitched the the, the biggest new film of twenty twenty two? Oh my great. God! Well, wait. Remember the last time Arnold tried to make a vampire movie and it was going to cost like a gajillion dollars? And was it Paul Verhoeven? No, it was I Am Legend that was with Ridley Scott. Oh, I Am Legend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I recently saw some concept art for that and it looked absolutely incredible. And Gosh, the plug was pulled weeks before, it, mere weeks Ugh. before filming was, was scheduled to begin. I have a feeling, guys, it would have been a lost, uh, well, I'm not going to say masterpiece because that might have been pushing <laughs> it, but a, a lost cracker and maybe, you know, the, the the last great Arnold movie. But listen, we're not here to talk about Arnold. Yes, sorry, fuck, no. <laughs> fuck Dutch. Oh. We're here to talk about Dylan, his, his best friend, his duplicitous best friend, mm. who ultimately pays the price for his duplicitous duplicity by having one or both or all three of his arms ripped off by a predator is very hard to tell. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I feel a little bit the way uh, Terry feels about, you know, the Rocky movies um, about Predator in terms of just this, just, I feel very affectionate towards these displays of outrageously silly over the top masculinity. I just think they're <laughs> adorable, and possibly that's not the the word that they're going for. But I just I, I find them really fascinating and funny and and cute. And and the the ludicrous masculinity of a predator <laughs> is is really special. Just from that arm wrestle on, from the yeah. you know tar- 
toting a minigun about, you know, just all the knives, like all of the just posturing and ludicrousness. And and, and yeah. like that carried over into real life as well, of course, wasn't it? It was Carl Weathers himself who used to yeah. get up at 3am to do his workout and then swan about all day like he didn't even have to try while all the rest were desperately trying to maintain their, their pumped up muscles. You know, that kind of gamesmanship and 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 silliness is is kind of adorable. So it is. Yeah. I love it's, it. It's it's extraordinary. But also just like the the fact that the like the metaphorical willy waving, the way mm. all of the you know, they sort of have these big guns and uh, and Dylan has a little sort of H and K MP five, like a little submachine gun. Like even his metaphorical dick in it is smaller than everyone else's. Uh, and I, I love that. That he's sitting there with this little submachine gun and Dutch has this insane gun. Blaine has old painless, like old it's painless. nuts. Poncho's got his fucking grenade launcher. And that little that little Mac thing, you know, because he never fits in with him. Like at the beginning, mm. like you meet him, he's not very good at being duplicitous because when uh, when they talk about going in, he gives that really pointed look at the general, which is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> obvious that something's going on. He never fits in with them all. And even when, and what I love about it is when he does that speech, when he kind of, uh, when he reveals to Dutch that he's known all along, that they were there to stop this guerrilla incursion uh, and they weren't there to save this cabinet official. You know, and he does that, you know, you're an asset, an expendable asset, and I use you to get the job done. And you get the sense that he doesn't really believe what he's saying, that actually mm. he feels fucking terrible about the whole thing. And he's trying to convince himself mm. that he did the right thing. And I think that's why Dylan is so good, that he wants more than anything to be one of the guys, to be like part of that team. And he doesn't quite fit, and I think it, it eats him up. Again, it goes back to what I was saying about Apollo Creed. And I don't know whether mm. this sometimes is something that's in the writing or whether it's just something that's in Carl Weathers' inherent charisma and likability, that he takes these roles that could on paper have been, quote unquote, the bad guy role. Mm. And by yeah. sheer force mm. of will, yeah. turns him into something that you really like. Yeah. 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 When Dylan at the end of Predator, you know, it's not even at the end of Predator, he gets killed with half an hour before the end of Predator. But <laughs> yeah. when he makes his sacrifice play, he knows he's not coming back from that. Mm. Yeah. But you feel for him because that's the real Dylan, not the pencil pushing mm. dickhead that we've been seeing, yeah. you know, for the last hour or so. The real Dylan is a guy who will lay his life on the line to make things right, to atone for it. And of course, for a second there, we think he might actually have a chance against the Predator just yeah. for a second. Dutch says, you can't win this. He's like, maybe I can get even. Mm, sadly, no. But uh, <laughs> you can't. Sorry. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, in the helicopter when Blaine spits on his foot and he kind of beckons him over. And you think, is it going to be a fight? That's a real nasty habit you got there. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's great. They're just the seething machismo all the way through that. And most of it seems to radiate in large part from, well, I mean, from all of them. They're oh, all built like wrestlers. Yeah, so. there is no, but but there Weathers is no has a lot, a lot to, a lot to contribute to that. Yeah. I read on the IMDb today that uh, Carl was inducted into the International Mustache Hall of Fame in 2016 right in the category film and television. I love that they have categories. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he does. He's up there with uh, Sam Elliott and Tom Selleck. Uh, I would say, as you know, having one of the great tashes of the last 30, 40 years. Hey, no messing with Eddie Murphy. I, I hear Eddie his Murphy. Is iconic. Yeah. 
Absolutely, but I love Carl Weathers' uh, moustache. He is, of course, sporting the uh, the the goatee these days, mm-hmm. and That's you know, right. he's he's let it be a, its natural white rather than dyeing it, which is uh, very very cool and distinguished. The behind the scenes pic of him directing on the Mandalorian that we published with this the story you can you can see it on our Twitter and you can see it on the uh, on the story in EmpireOnline.com. You have to look at it and go, this man is seventy two years old. He looks <laughs> and is in better shape. He looks younger than me, and he is in better <laughs> shape than me. <laughs> and he's nearly twice my age. What the hell is going on? It's it's quite something. We should all be maybe doing more press ups or something. <laughs> like yes, getting yeah. up at three a.m. for a workout and absolutely uh, the Carl Weathers regime. That on Predator and Shane Black used to talk about this that uh, that he was he was the big star on Predator. Like when they went down in in when they shot in in well in the country that isn't in fact Valverde. When they went down <laughs> to the sort of the local nightclub, everyone swarmed around Weathers. Like no one paid any attention to Arnold. It was all about oh it's Apollo Creed, it's Apollo Creed. Like he was the big noise when they went out dancing. He was dancing on tables and living it large as it should be that seems as, as indeed it should be entirely correct that's amazing that's absolutely amazing uh does anyone have I, I suspect i'm talking to the wrong crowd here but does anyone have any uh, any affection at all for his role as chubbs the one-handed golf coach uh, i do in, yeah happy gilmore yeah, yeah, Happy Gilmore, happy motherfuckers. Gilmore. That's back when I liked Adam Sandler, you know. Ha. That's when he was trying. <laughs> That's when he was trying. <laughs> Instead of very trying, as he is now. Um, <laughs> hey. um, no, I, I, I like him. I think he's really charming. I think just generally his mentor roles are fascinating because obviously, like, as, as Terry said, you know, Apollo Creed is, is an incredible kind of mentor role and he plays that brilliantly. Grief Carga, to an extent, is a mentor role. But then you have things like Arrested Development and Happy Gilmore, where he plays a very different kind of mentorish figure. I mean, his acting coach uh, thing in in Arrest Development is one of my favourite roles of his, and the role in in Happy Gilmore is just so unlikely and and so stupid, and he just plays it so straight down the middle that it works. I, I love it. And again, one handed. And one handed. Yeah. He literally could do it one handed. Yeah, I wonder if that was a nod to Predator in some way. <laughs> And uh, he played the role again very, very briefly in Little Nicky. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I, I keep expecting him because Hoobie Halloween was almost like the Avengers of the, uh, the Adam <laughs> Sandler first, the Happy Madison first. And uh, I maybe think that one day Chubbs will turn up again. But yeah, but you never know. But, you know, looking at, looking at Carl Weathers' filmography, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Helen. Hollywood has not served him well, mm. I have to say. And, you know, he's in the Rocky, first four Rocky movies. He's got Action Jackson on his CV. He's really funny in Happy Gilmore. He's got versatility. He's got range. Uh, and after Happy Gilmore, there's really not a lot on there mm. in terms of, you know, he retreats to TV. And it's such a shame. After Happy Gilmore, there's pretty much nothing of note cinematically. Uh, mm. He's in Toy Story 4 as one of the voices of Combat Carl. Uh, all Combat Carls actually are voices of him. Carls, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and that's, that's pretty much it, uh, really. Yeah. And that's a shame. Hollywood, do better. Do better. Stand by your Carl. You just didn't get a lot of, you know, leading leading man roles for, for black men uh, in his prime. There is an alternate universe where he and not Avery Brooks got the role of Benjamin Sisko in Deep Space Nine, which apparently, according to the internet, which of course never puts out misleading facts, <laughs> uh, he was one of the ones considered very early on mm. for that role. And that, that I mean, I love Avery Brooks, but yeah. can you imagine Deep Space Nine with Carl Weathers as Sisko? I mean, that would have been a hell of a thing to watch. That would have been it pretty really great. It really would. I can imagine all sorts of things with Carl Weathers as, as you know, in, in them. You know, great. You know, he should be at the forefront of this Jerry action mm-hmm. genre, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah. 
it shouldn't be just the preserve of of Big Liam and um, I was going to throw Keanu Reeves in there, although he does not look geriatricary. Um, <laughs> you know, but it shouldn't just be the preserve of Big Liam and and Kevin Costner and, and people like that. And, and everyone who does one of those has, has gone out of my head. But um, but essentially, he 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 could be doing takens. Mm. He could be doing stuff like that, and uh, it's a shame that he isn't. But of course, on the small screen, I think brings us to fire a, a quick mention of obviously of his wonderfully self-deprecating cameo as himself in Arrested Development, so good, where he plays himself as an acting coach <laughs> and basically the cheapest man alive. <laughs> Which is really fun, with a particular emphasis on the recycling of foodstuffs, which is which is great. Um, brings us to Grief Carga, mm. and I think we discussed it on our Mandalorian spoiler specials. Um, and there'll be a big plug flows at the end of the show, so you know, hang around for that, folks. It's gonna be really good. We talked about this on the last season of the Mandalorian. That in some ways, I think Favs, John Favreau, our good friend Favs, was kind of doing a Tarantino with the casting of that and looking at it almost as a sort of rehabilitation home for mm. actors who deserved better, essentially. Yeah. So people like Gina Carano, for example, has a great screen presence. And so he, he wanted to use that as, as Cara Dune and Carl bloody weathers for the love of Christ as Grief Carga. And uh, I think this has brought him to a, a whole new generation, this show. Mm. Rightly so. Yeah, absolutely. And he's he's really good in the role because, you know, he just turned up. It could have been a one episode, you know, here is the guy who tells you where to go role, you know, mm. just Mr. Exposition, Basil Exposition. But he's he's kind of grown with it and, and added shades to it and really justified his place in season two and justified what appears to be a much bigger continuing role in a sort of, you know... Lando-y figure of, you know, a, now a, a governor, now a man of responsibility, now a man who is, you know, trying to do stuff for others and not just himself. It's it's mm-hmm. it's genuine character progression so far. Mm. And he has, he lights up every scene he's in because his mm. charisma is palpable now. I think he does elevate all the episodes he's in. I love it when, he's, when he turns yeah. on. Uh, and he's so cute with Baby Yoda. He is very, very cute with Baby Yoda. Or as he, he calls it, as he said to me in the interview, he just calls it the baby or the kid. Yeah. When he's on set. Quite right. Quite, Quite right. right. Yeah, he's so good. He's so good. And I was so glad to see him, you know, because initially you think when he gets shot, is it episode three where he gets shot? Mm. And you think, Uh-oh. as Mando, does Mando know about the Beskar steel? We're, we're delving a bit into a Mandalorian spoiler special here, but does, does has Mando deliberately aimed for the Beskar steel or was that a lucky shot? Who knows? But because uh, John Favreau isn't reacting to audience you know, approval, He you know, because the, the shows are all filmed in one yeah. go. So yeah. obviously he felt there was something about Weathers as Grief Carga that he wanted to keep him around. And um, yeah, I don't think we've seen the last of him so far yeah. in, the, uh, in this episode. I, you know, I think he's going to come back and uh, and help Mando dispense some, some frontier justice. Woohoo. Final frontier justice, if you will. Hey. Yes. Oh wait, that's that's different, Star Trek. Different the other universe. One. Different universe. <laughs> wrong movie. That's the other one. <laughs> I can't believe we haven't talked about him and Rocky running around in those tight shorts in Rocky Three. I know Terry, <laughs> as our Rocky correspondent, is not here, but it's it's one of the it's a it just it's a gif you see over and over again, along with the arm wrestling. Mm. It was. I mean, look, it was the style in the eighties. Everybody was wearing. Ridiculously tiny shorts. I, I guess <laughs> that was the thing to do. You know, it was the thing to do. I, I think I just want to uh, suggest one thing before we go. Like, I think yeah. he may have consistently the greatest character names 
in cinema history. Kyle Western, apart from the ones we've talked about, Kyle Western is there. Billy Hurricane Smith, Adam <laughs> Baudreau, you know, obviously we've talked about Chubbs. I mean, okay, Roy Brown isn't great, but like generally speaking, he has but had- Chubby Roy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. He's had some- Dr. Artemis Snodgrass? Good Lord. Um, you know, he's had some <laughs> hilarious names. I just feel like we should we should pay tribute to that. Yeah, of course. And in Upgrade 2, uh, which, by the way, was uh, in the works before Lee Wanell made Upgrade. So technically mm. speaking, he needs to change the name of his movie. Uh, <laughs> Upgrade 2, colon, unlandable, colon, holding pattern, with Carl Weathers. Sure. Uh, he would play a pilot called Carl Weathers, but it just happens to be, he's not playing himself, but it's just his a name. Person with- this is the thing. You talk about the great character names, Helen. Yeah. His name alone oh, his is name so alone is, yeah. fucking yeah. cool. Carl Weathers. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> who do you want in that cockpit in an upgrade to colon unlandable colon holding pattern with Carl Weathers to Weathers the storm, but Carl Weathers. So in this scenario, just to be clear, he'd be a character who looks like Carl Weathers and is called Carl Weathers, but is not Carl Weathers, but Carl Weathers exists in this universe? Yes. Huh. So you're kind of taking the Kareem Al-Jabbar f- joke from Airplane to its no. logical conclusion. No, I'm not, because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Airplane plays Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. He is literally playing himself, yeah. but he's just moonlighting as an airline pilot. You're taking it one step further than that. I'm taking it one step further because wow. I'm Carl Weathers in, in, wow. in it. So and good. who else do you want? Do you, who do you want by your side when everybody in economy becomes a vampire? Everyone oh, in they? premium economy <laughs> becomes a werewolf and everyone in uh, upper class becomes mm. a zombie. Who else do you want to fight those hordes? Wow. Uh, so obviously, obviously, airlines other than Virgin are available. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this Wait. doesn't happen. This is a fictional airline. <laughs> Wait, so hang on. So it's all zombies, werewolves, and uh, vampires. Yes. So, I, I apologize to anyone who listened to the interview and they're hearing this again. But so one passenger yeah. gets upgraded from oh, I see. Pre- from economy to premium economy and becomes a vampire werewolf. And he teams up with Carl Weathers and Halle Berry reprising her stewardess role from Executive Decision. So it was wow. actually, we're, we're in the oh, Executive so Decision actual... first. Wow, I forgot okay, to mention yeah. that. That's important. They team up to fight the evil wizard who has put the spell on Wizards. all these people. There's a wizard, right. I forgot There's to mention wizard. the wizard. Okay. <laughs> a wizard. And, wow. they, you know, so, and who else do you need? You need Carl Weathers, you need Halle Berry and A.N. Guest star as okay. the as the vampire song, werewolf as the vampire werewolf yeah right I mean surely you could bring it into the underworld verse and have what's yes. his name who is the was it uh, what do you call him Scott something Scott Speedman Scott, Scott, Scott Speedman. Speedman oh my I do god do not want yeah. to sully this movie with Scott Speedman <laughs> look I'm no. just saying you want a vampire werewolf I've got one for you so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well I'll take it under advisement. I will say one one last Weathers thing. I will say uh, that, of course, on the Pilot TV podcast, I talk about The oh, Shield God. an awful lot, which is one of my favourite TV shows. And uh, he appears in two episodes of The Shield as Vic Mackey's former partner, who's kind of lost his way, he's got no job, got no family, living in a bedsit. Uh, he's not having a great time, uh, former officer Joe Clark, but he's, he's really, really, really good in that role because it gives Vic Mackey, Michael Chiklis, a vision of what his life could have been. Mm. Not in a, like, you know, 
Christmas Carol kind of way. He's not the ghost, <laughs> the ghost of corrupt cops' future. Tis the season, James. Tis the season. <laughs> but that's that's kind of why we're doing this. We're doing this, you know, because we we, we realise as well we have some great archive material from from the podcast. <laughs> we're doing this because Carl Weathers is not the sort of person we would dedicate an episode the ranking to. For example, the yeah. filmography just mm. isn't there. It, it would be, be short. It would be you know Predator at number one, Rocky four, Rocky three, and so on. But. Um, I put Rocky three above Rocky there. Yeah, well, I, did that. I, I lost my mind. I think yeah. I think Terry might have notes on that, Chris. Yeah, I think so. I think I've got notes on that. And then where do you put upgrades to? Call on unlandable. Call on holding pattern with Carl Weathers. He just you know is it number one? Is it number three? Is it all five? Who knows? But you know we were just chatting about Carl Weathers and how much we loved him. We thought you know what let's do a show about mm. Carl Weathers and then maybe we can put some of our old interviews in here as well. And. He's a really good actor, and I'm glad that finally The Mandalorian is shining the spotlight on him. That has been shining on him before, obviously, but was not shining on him for many, many years, and Hollywood hasn't done well by him. And uh, I'm very, very glad to see that he's finally getting his day in the sun. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. And on that note, that is it for this impromptu um, Carl Weathers special. We were just having so much fun talking about him, we decided to do it as a podcast. And uh, uh, I don't know what the next episode of this whatever the hell this is is going to be uh, but we will keep you keep you posted whenever that appears trip down memory lane it'll trip into the archives maybe i'll come up with a special name for it uh, but i will say as well if you liked what you heard yes it's plug time sorry guys but if you liked what you heard from the mandalorian interview there is more there is much more where that came from over on our mandalorian spoiler special and it's not just an extended interview with carl weathers about directing that episode and playing grief carga on the show you also get us three bellends and ben travis talking about the show mainly the great british bake-off but occasionally <laughs> we do talk about the mandalorian uh it's it's a lot of fun and if you subscribe to our spoiler special channel uh, you, which you can do so by going to my pinned tweet or going to empireonline.com forward slash podcast. I think, Jimbo, that's where people can find it, probably. Sure, I mean, it would make not? sense, right? It would make <laughs> sense. I mean, if we didn't have something up there, we'd be idiots, right? But uh, you can go to my pinned tweet at Chris Hewitt to find details of how to sign up. You will get access to our weekly Mandalorian spoiler specials and an ever-growing archive of over 130 incredible spoiler special podcasts. Uh, well, incredible for other people to judge, but uh, pretty pretty good, pretty good spoiler special podcasts featuring in-depth interviews with some of the biggest names in the business, from Christopher McQuarrie through to Quentin Tarantino, from Jordan Peele through to Kathy Yan, uh, from Edgar Wright through to, who, who else? The Russo Brothers, Kevin Feige. We've got all sorts of amazing, oh, that's for other people to judge, spoiler specials in there. It is well worth your time. Uh, so take a look at that. And there you will find the extended Carl Weathers and more Mando then you can shake a dark saber at. Right, I think that's pretty much it. All right. Uh, it is thank you and goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, Terry White having already fled the scene, James Dyer, aka Dylan. <laughs> yes, maybe I can get even. <laughs> Terrifying. Yes, said in a sort of you know posh English accent doesn't quite have <laughs> yes, the same power. Maybe does it? I can get even. <laughs> Sounds more villainous. Does maybe I can get even with you, predator? Turn around, turn around, bright eyes. <laughs> uh, it is goodbye from Creed Richards, aka Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. I can't really do. It. I was Any thinking time. about her. Goodbye, Chris. You <laughs> son of a bitch. But that's all I got. <laughs> It's goodbye from me, Chubbs Hewitt. I'm off the strap, my arm behind my back, and hope nobody sees it. 
Shh, guys, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.